Hi, welcome to Five Days with Doug. I'm Doug Perkins. Today, I'm really happy to share a conversation I had with a friend of mine, Matt Malin, about two weeks ago in Chicago. We got together at his house, we drank some coffee, and sat around and uh, did what Matt and I normally do, which is to talk all, all things music and hopes and dreams and art and family, and we seem to have a good way of getting right down to it when we talk. So uh, in that vein, I should let you know that we just kind of, when you join us in conversation, we're already mid, mid-chat. Um, as we just sat down, Matt and I started kind of diving into the, into the good conversations to where I just said, Matt, pick up your microphone and push record. So you catch up with us mid-conversation about his time working with the Brooklyn Phil and uh, our mutual friend, Alan Pearson. So when you hear us talking about Alan in Brooklyn, that's what we're talking about. We also talk about the many interesting things that Matt has been up to in his career. We talk about his uh, recent concert of music that he calls Easy Not Easy. He'll explain that more in there, but I'm a big fan. It's in its fifth year. And in fact, I think this is the thing that caused me to reach out to Matt for the first time five years ago. We also talk about um, where I found him, which was uh, when he was working for Roulette and all the cool stuff he did there and doing these concerts and doing Roulette TV. And also we talk about his work at SAIC in Chicago and his time at the Silent Barn and what that means in his life. Um, yeah, it's a great a great and ranging conversation. We also talk about being dudes who had bands when we were kids and playing shows in our house, all that kind of fun stuff, as well as dad talk, uh, being two dads, dad talk, dad talk happens. Not a lot, but a little bit. We're just talking about our kids uh, and they're, they're striving to become musicians. Uh, so anyhow, drop a line if you ever want to tell me what happens with the podcast, good or bad. Subscribe, and most importantly, enjoy Matt. I had been thinking about movies The way people talk as if they mean it Actors with an air of conviction It has to do with the face It's incredible power to make even The most trivial speech sound Desperate getting this, this mentorship program with the Brooklyn Phil. And so I got basically free orchestration lessons with Randy Wolf for a year, basically, to write a new piece for String Quartet that uh, Brooklyn Phil players uh, uh, premiered at uh, Brooklyn Museum. Oh, cool. Pretty awesome concert. And then... Uh, 
after that, Alan was like, that was right as Alan came on and he started coming up with these I, concert ideas, concert series ideas. Right. One of which was this concert called Brooklyn Village, which um, was a sort of telling of Brooklyn's history. Oh, yeah, yeah, I think I remember that. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote a piece for that. He sort of commissioned me to write a piece for that with Royce Favrick, the, the librettist. Nice. Yeah. Um, so I ended up working with the Brooklyn Phil for like, I don't know, felt like two years or something like that off and on. Oh, that's great. It's awesome. Yeah. Pretty special. Does Randy live in New York? Uh-huh. Yeah. Did he have... Oh, I'm thinking of Randy Coleman. Not Randy yeah. Wolf. Sorry. Randy Coleman from Oberlin. Yeah. I was conflating my Oberlin Also a, a, a Randy that's amazing that right, I right. studied with and that Oberlin. Yeah, yeah. I was conflating your OB. Yeah. Your OB Randys with yeah. New York Randys. Yeah. Randy Wolf is a composer. Uh, he's married to Kathleen Sapove. Uh-huh. And um, he's a great teacher, though. It was awesome. I mean, it was like having private lessons, you know, which I hadn't had since I was, you know, 16 or something. And went over, oh, wow. Went over to his apartment and listened to pieces and you know went through like a because he didn't do notes on paper at all at Oberlin I mean I did a little bit because uh, I had the same um, you know I was in, in the conservatory there were there was a music technology major at Oberlin that was in the college and it had a little bit less of the conservatory requirement but I was in the conservatory so I had to do oral skills music theory composition electives all that stuff so I did a little bit of it, but I never took an orchestration class. Um, the jazz department was so um, kind of intimidating and insular that I didn't, I wish I had taken like jazz orchestration and things like that. But I, when I got there, I, I tried out for like the jazz big band and, and yeah, had yeah, a hor- like, horrible experience. <laughs> it's, a, it's a thing, that, yeah. that Overland jazz thing. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, wasn't, I wasn't like... Uh, uh, trained for that. You know, I, I, I took piano lessons from when I was like four or five until I was 12. And then I got a guitar and I took guitar lessons from like, uh, until I graduated from high school. But it's like, mostly I played in piano lessons. The, the, you know, the, the ultimate goal, goal was to play like Bach two-part inventions in like local uh, competitions, you uh-huh. know, that kind of thing. And then when I got into high, junior high, my piano teacher was like, oh, you know, you should listen to the Beatles and things like that. And, and then like we, then he introduced me to the idea of improvising for like the first time. Right. Uh-huh. Which, uh, I felt like was pretty, um, well, I mean, it was, you know, mind blowing at the time, but it was like, this is a little late <laughs> to understand that people can even do this, but I guess people get into, you know, people finish college and yeah. D- DMAs so, so without really thinking much about that. <laughs> how, so how old were you when you started, when you felt like you unlocked your improv? Um, I mean, I actually don't really feel like I unlocked my improv thing until, until you I were, lived in New York. It was exposed to you. Yeah. When I was 12, probably. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So you had a little, a little bit of craft in the tank at least like mm-hmm. scales and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But I was, I was, um, my mom was really loose about it. I mean, she made me practice and stuff, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't sort of pushed in, you know, like I didn't have a sort of structured yeah. mu- music education and, and, and the schools I went to, they were great. Like my, I, I went to the high school and I joined the, the, um, marching band cause I was, and I was in the percussion section 
because they needed somebody that could read notes uh-huh. in, in addition to rhythms. So I played the, the xylophone in the marching, marching band. band. Was yeah. it so you were in the front ensemble? You didn't march as a... No, yeah. I was on the sideline. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then, and then was in the, you know, what do they call that? Concert band, things like that. And my band teacher was... R- really great in a lot of ways but it wasn't like uh i don't know what how to it wasn't like rigorous right it band was not necessarily a priority uh-huh. for, for me or anybody in the school or necessarily the school district or you know any of that stuff so um i won the uh louis armstrong award for musical achievement or something like that in high school. And I I shouldn't, I I mean, Uh I shouldn't have by the account of my, you know, what I remember doing in high school musically, but I had a band and I got really into four track recording and played in the variety show. And we started organizing battle of the bands events in the gymnasium and things like that. DIY. That's good. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I was, (laughs) I was just asking the improv question because my, so my son is nine and a half. Yeah. And, he, I started him out like we've I've tried we've tried to improvise as he's mm-hmm. been growing up, but um, I feel like you probably do that as well. I feel mm-hmm. like I've seen videos of yeah. you and your daughter rocking mm-hmm. out. Um, but it's funny now that he's trying to like he's taking lessons, mm-hmm. air quotes lessons, mm-hmm. and uh, he's really confused as to why if you can make up sounds you would ever have to learn the right order of things. <laughs> so trying to teach a nine and a half year old the difference between freedom and craft, yeah, is harder than you is for oh, me totally. harder than I would think. Oh man. Yeah. Of like, well, you gotta, you know, trying to like, well, you gotta learn the tricks and then when you learn the tricks, yeah, then you can, it's super interesting. Yeah. So we've been having that. It's going okay. Now he's, he started violin for some, for some I think he plays violin cause I don't, uh-huh. <laughs> but so he started playing the violin, but he's actually like taking that's, it seriously and stuff. That's the thing that I feel like with my kid is that, um, uh, I'm going to be like the last person that's capable of giving her music lessons. I mean, my music lessons like started from when she was a baby, but, but it's going to be a different kind of music lesson. Like I'm going to need right. to like get somebody to introduce the idea of, of craft of like, um, you know, mastery of an instrument. Just good. I think I ruined the drums for him. Yeah. I wonder, I kind of, in hindsight, like, and he's playing more now, but I did the thing of when he was trying to learn it his dad proved himself so much better than him uh-huh. that I think he, it was discouraging. Yeah. Right. So the violin, like I just don't touch it. Yeah. Right. I'm like, I don't know. Yeah. Would, you know, like I just act like, yeah. How would you do that? Yeah, totally. And so he feels I'm, he has room to have ownership. Of yeah. It. He has some, yeah. Some self identity there. I'm just digging. You were talking about your, um, rock bands. Yeah. And I'm showing you this. So I have this friend, this guy, Colin Curry, who's mm-hmm. this percussionist. Who's kind of this, international soloist extraordinaire Mm -hmm. so he played i'm from pittsburgh pennsylvania Mm -hmm. so he played with the orchestra there yesterday Mm -hmm. but took my mom and dad out for coffee yesterday because he's a sweet boy yeah and my mom um of course told him like all the stories of my youth yeah which led um him to talk about my rock bands but i want to show you the so i don't always carry this photo but this is the (laughs) stage i built in my basement to play some concerts one time oh man from my high school rock band. oh my god that's amazing look at that Red the, pearl kit. Red pearl kit. Yeah. Black light off the ceiling. Yeah. We actually stole some theater lights off the I-beam over there. Oh, my God. That's amazing, dude. You have, like, the drum riser. What were you into at this time? Um, 
it was probably like run of the mill alternative stuff. Yeah. I'm trying to think of what I would have played. I probably would have played some like violent femmes, yeah. some chili peppers. Some Dude, this PA, this PA like looks like a PA that I remember. It's like the ancient PV. Yeah. Probably still in your band. Because yeah. that was all from like it was like for, from Christmas. Yeah. Totally. So I took home my 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 jazz band's PA and yeah. these are all the risers for like the choir concert at my school. Yeah, totally. The band director was into it. But so That's awesome. There's my Yeah, in this backyard right here, I we we had my uh uh junior high graduation party where my band played and I played my brand new Fender Jagstang. Kurt Cobain des- designed Nice made in Japan guitar. I, wow! Yeah, all my uh, graduation money went to buy. Went over there with my dad. That's great. Because mm-hmm. yeah, we're in your we're in your childhood homestead. Yeah, from when from right around that age we moved here when I was twelve. Yeah, you were were you in the area? Mm-hmm. Or? Okay, yeah, so yeah, I, I lived in this area my whole life. I was, Somewhere else. Yeah, I was born at the hospital over there at Humana, but which is St. Alexius now, and like we lived a house like three blocks over that way, and then before that, like four blocks over, a little further east do you still have that guitar i do absolutely i still play that guitar on on tour oh that's great (laughs) i had a um white kramer Mm. (laughs) because i was in my eddie van halen phase when i got a guitar yeah but i ended up selling that i had a crappy like fake um p bass Mm. but then a friend of mine ran it over with his car (laughs) to be fair i leaned it against his car (laughs) i shouldn't have leaned it where i leaned it (laughs) yeah and then I great. think in that picture, I had a sweet Yamaha, like an orange, rust orange mm. Yamaha bass. Oh, that's awesome. But I sold that in college, which bumps me out. Yeah. I've since bought yeah. a Strat. I couldn't bring myself like... <laughs> to buy a new Kramer? <laughs> well, no, no, no. Or to no. buy like a cool, like anything. Like I wanted to get a decent guitar. Yeah. But like I just didn't, I'm, I suck so bad. You know, like <laughs> I didn't want to get one of the cool fenders. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was just like, I'll get a Strat, and then yeah. if I practice, I can yeah. work my way out. Yeah, my first guitar was a Squire Strat. My for when I graduated college, my my little brother as a as like a graduation a graduation presents, I guess all, all these graduation. But my brother as a graduation pre- present took the frets off, so I have a a fretless fretless Strat. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's awesome. As, a, as an actual graduation present, or as a screw you graduation present? <laughs> it's a good question. <laughs> I was really excited about it, actually. Oh, and I've used it on some stuff. It's really great. There's a guy in New York. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of his name. I think it's... No, I'm forgetting his name. His brother's a musician too. Japanese guy uh, that plays fretless guitar. He's got a fretless SG. And he just wails. He's in a band with um, Alessandro Bossetti. Do you know him? maybe i know his name he he does these like uh really interesting sort of like pieces about speech and language um sort of electroacoustic pieces and he had a band with ches smith and is it kato hideki is that his name have you ever heard that name before you're gonna house me so fast <laughs> it was I'm, it was killing that band was like totally killing ches smith it's like these sort of weird spoken word vocal gymnastics with Ches Smith playing and then fretless guitar playing these like sort of Robert Ashley-esque like uh, melodies that were transcribed from speech. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really cool. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. So how was your show this week? Oh, it was great. It was awesome, actually. A really great group. And uh, the more that I do it, 
Okay, just just for the context yeah. of a microphone. So you do these shows called Easy Not Easy. Yeah, um, and you you ask for pieces, mm-hmm. and they are largely text pieces. Are they all text pieces? Are they? Yeah. Well, there's no guidelines uh, about what they need to be. It's just that they need to be able to be performed with no rehearsal. rehearsal. So I tend to get a lot of text pieces, and people who are a little bit more familiar with like the text score, um, I don't know, history or the idiom. Yeah. The idiom performance practice of a text. Exactly. Um, they, they tend to do these like really beautifully succinct single page text scores that, that that, like are sent to me with a really nice font title and like, it's perfect. Right. Um, but it's other people will, will bring like, written music but like trying to get it to its core um and depending on the musicians like you know i mean usually the musicians are such that you could put a a crew together that could sight read something really beautifully um so we've had some like there was a piece there's a bassist uh, named katie ernst um here in chicago and she did a piece for the last one and it was like this beautiful ballad that was totally scored out we all had parts and, but, and we played it for the first time together in the show. It was amazing. It was beautiful. Um, but yeah, so there's a wide range of stuff and some people will give, um, images and, you know, kind of poetry and, um, yeah. And so how many pieces did you do this year? We did 10. Yeah. Pretty much every, I try to get 10 close to 10 for each show. And then depending on how, lo- how long the pieces seem like they'll be, you know, I might split it into two sections. But typically I'll try to get 10 people and 8 to 10 performers. And, um, yeah, so I've done Easy Not Easy, like, I guess this is the fifth time. Okay. But it's been, the first two times we did it, it was done as benefits for Roulette, which is where I used to work in New York. And uh, we did three nights in a row the first time and then two nights in a row the second time we did it. So now it's been... Uh, nine evenings of music. Um, so I'm, I, I keep talking about making like a book of scores uh, the last do. couple of years. Yeah. Um, but I think I was talking to somebody about it. I was talking to Stefan Moore about it. I don't know if you know him. He's up at Northwestern now, but uh, like I should just get to a hundred. And then once I get to a hundred, then make a then book. Make that the, yeah. That the number. Yeah. <laughs> so you're at 50. Yeah. Close to 50. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't know whether I, I mean, I probably got to go above that because I don't know whether everybody will agree to, uh, you know, be included, but. Or you could do, uh, you could do it at 50, do part one. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But it was great this time. I think people are, you know, the great thing about doing it over and over again is that people start to get, the idea starts to be more familiar or something. Uh Even though it doesn't seem like it's the same people, it's not necessarily the same audience and it's, it's definitely not the same people that are performing. But I just think the more that it's in front of like the community, like so this is the third time we've done it in Chicago. Uh-huh. This time I had a couple people come up to me afterwards and be like, can, are you, can I do this somewhere else? Like, is, is this idea like your, you know, like, and it was great to, to have this, that possibility open up. Cause that's what I wanted from the beginning is to just sort of like have this dialogue going about, I mean, it's, for me, it's about a couple things. Like one, like the fact that there's 
it costs a lot of money to rehearse. Yeah. You know, uh, for composed music, you know, especially depending on what type of music it is. But, you know, in that uh, universe, it's funny how little money there is devoted to rehearsal, right? Outside of institutions, right? Music's, Outside of institutions are famous composers. Yeah. Yes, there is. Yeah, exactly. Virtually none. Um, so then it's kind of like this this wink towards that a little bit. And then also just lev- the leveling of the playing field of who can write music for a new music event, you know, and making sure to, in- and who can be part of the ensemble performing. So I'm always trying to m- make it sort of an even split between people who are, in the new music scene, you know, classically trained or uh, peripherally, peripherally involved in that scene, and then like the jazz improviser scene, and then the you know that sort of gray um, underground music scene that involves a lot of different kinds of music makers, um, you know, whether they're doing like electronic music or indie rock music or indie rock. <laughs> Or um, hip hop or house music, things like that. Uh-huh. And just try to find people that are doing things in any of those realms that that could approach making music in that way. So, I mean, last the, the last one we had, do you know who Hieroglyphic Being is? He's this guy, oh. Jamal Moss. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, he's in Chicago. He did a, a piece for the one of the last rounds, and it was it was sick. It was great. Um, he's makes house music, you know, right. Mostly he just works with like drum machines and, um, since and on his own, you know, he ended up making a record around that time too, where, uh, he got like William Parker to play on it and, and Shelly Hirsch is on it and it's really awesome. Um, and then this time we had, um, we had this guy Namdi uh, Agbant. Agbanaya, I'm butchering his last name, but um, he has a project called Namdi's Super Duper Side Project. He's a guy here in Chicago. He's in a band called Mono Body too. He wrote one of the one of the, my favorite pieces from the concert, and he, he's never really. Um, he said that he's he's written music like that before, but never really had anybody perform it. Uh huh. So it was awesome. It was great. And then you know then we had people, Nick Collins was involved this time. Um, his, his piece was great. And uh, Michael Zarang, who's like a, a drum percussionist in the in real involved in the improvised scene, jazz scene here. Yeah, yeah it's it's always my hope. Well, because I feel like I first talked to you based around this project. Yeah. Because I was... You wanted, wanted it as... Wanted some of the tunes as material for this group I was working with at Dartmouth that mm-hmm. is sort of a confluence of, you know, composer performers or engineer performers, yeah. or computer scientist performers. Yeah. And, you know, so you define common language. This project seems to solve all those problems. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's an interesting uh, challenge too for everybody. Right. Because it's sort of like, and that was the hardest part initially um, was getting the people the, the really accomplished and experienced composers to um, to go along with the idea and let go a little bit uh-huh. and, and and maybe early on I was I was a little more nervous about asking people to to forcing people into a, a situation and now I'll be a little more straightforward about it I think um, 
but uh, it, it's really interesting once you get those people to come come down to a, a different level, right? And take them out of that that comfort zone that they found for themselves. But yeah, I just I would love to have like a regular ensemble. At the same time, uh, I like it being like a different group of people every time because then it's also this like there's there's no habitual no ideas or an approach to how this is how we play it exactly like yeah um yeah actually i was just talking to uh this guy um dushko petrovich who's teaching at saic um he's a painter and um he work, does some publishing stuff and he he has this book we were talking about this book that his that he put out it's called like i forget what it's called but it's like these creative teaching creative pedagogical tools, basically. Um, he was talking about this, t- I, I don't even remember the name of the person, but he was talking about this this guy that would ha- had a class once where he asked all his students, all his students had to break into groups and start bands. And by the end of the semester, they had to like make a performance. So they uh-huh. had to do the whole thing. They had to come up with a name, figure out who was playing what instrument. And some people hadn't, didn't even play instruments, but it was like this process and I love that. I love that kind of thing. Uh, I, I sort of think of easy, not easy as being that. It's like this process of pushing you into making something happen. Right. Um, that is like forcefully freed from a lot of other like uh, situational, either like comfort zones or um, requirements. Yeah, I just think about it a lot as, um, well, do you want to, you know, like, yeah, it's just how my brain works, like ways to package, Mm -hmm. package the idea to make it as useful for, you know, like the easy, not easy toolkit or the, (laughs) or the, um, you know, almost like if there's like having a website with scores on it yeah, and then instructions for how to get a band yeah, and like, <laughs> yeah, you totally. know, like just, yeah, totally. just cause it is such a nice, um, it is such a strong concept. Like the, I, I mean, I, I love a good text piece. Mm-hmm. I love a text piece. I love to use a text piece. Yeah. But then the idea of it as a, it's almost like an empowerment tool mm-hmm. so that if you could, Cause it is the thing like I wanted when, when I contacted you to do it at Dartmouth or even thinking about performers I work with now just to have a curated place that has like, here's some, here's music that is yeah. diverse and wonderful. Yeah. Composers you should know about. Yeah. Performers you should know about. Yeah. So you can learn a little and then. Yeah, totally. Just kind of like it is, it is a path. Mm-hmm. Again, for even the idea of unlo- unlocking improvisation yeah. as a tool, um, not that this is improvised, but you know, spontaneously created music making. Yeah, whatever term you want to use. Yeah, exactly. Because thinking about just, but it's just my axe to grind of like being in the classical world, and I spend so much time discussing the best practices for a very specific set of instructions. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, that it's I'm it's always good to find ways to mm-hmm. unlock people's imagination. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And also then thinking about people like having a resource for people who need 
alternative forms of expression. Yeah. It's like you so often end up seeing like, you know, someone found the Fluxus workbook. Yeah. And we're going to get another <laughs> Fluxus concert. Yeah. But sometimes, and I love it. And, yeah. You know, I have, I have been hired by Fluxus exhibitions to mm-hmm. curate performances of the Fluxus workbook. Yeah. Totally. Um, but like for people who need some lines of directions to allow themselves to be creative. Yeah, totally. It's, no, and that, yeah, that's the, for me, that's like the most exciting part of it. You know, it's like freeing, I don't know that have you ever watched that, that, um, the interview, the, the whole idea came from, I was editing these roulette TV episodes and, um, David Behrman interviews Christian Wolf on the okay. roulette TV, uh-huh. Christian Wolf episode. And, uh, they just have this beautiful conversation with each other. I mean, you know, they, they've, I'm sure they've had many, many of those. Many, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and David just was talking about how like, well, what I'm interested in is like these deceptively simple scores that end up making a really complex kind of music. And, you know, they, they have this conversation about like the, the conservatory, one conservatory mode being like where you're building a sort of, uh, uh, reproduction machine. Uh (laughs) Right. Um, and fighting against that. I mean, David's, if you go back and watch like David's interview from like music with its roots in the ether, you ever watch that? The Bob Ashley no. video? Oh, it's amazing. It's really long and slow. It's like, it's like this kind of podcast style conversation. That's but great. He has them like, he does one with Terry Riley, one with David Behrman, uh, one with Philip Glass. And he sort of sets up these like conceptual landscapes that they're standing inside of and then there's like a performance aspect where a piece is played um and he and david Behrman are like sitting like overlooking san francisco bay something like that um the philip glass one is really funny like they're in like a classroom student classroom and like at certain points in the interview like these children like start marching around them (laughs) as the interview is happening and Terry Riley's interview is uh, they're milking a goat on like Terry Riley's farm. It's really great. But anyway, going back to like David Behrman's interview, then he's he's into the the same kind of stuff, like a sort of democratic, um, you know, like pushing against the composer as the all-knowing, mm-hmm. uh, important. Uh, being in the equation, right? And allowing for this like different kind of like mutual um, situation between a composer and a performer. And that's what I felt like, that's what I really took from their conversation with each other is like, well, how could you create that situation on like a regular basis? You know, because it's difficult on, for me, uh, on like a composer basis, right? Because so much, I don't want to go, I don't want to get too far into like a sort of theoretical universe but it's like so much of being a composer right is about like building up your personal um stature you know uh at different levels right and getting to a place where you can you can collect the resources to you know what i'm saying like to to Uh to have like a group of people that perform your work um you know you know and so you're either working institutionally to like rise that stature so that you have that institutional support um, or you're dealing with, you know, different industries to like 
rise up to that level so you have a kind of industry support that allows you to uh, have an ensemble and pay that ensemble to rehearse your work and et cetera, et cetera. So for me, uh, I like kind of wanting to push against that a little bit. Like how do you create a situation where it's not about me mm-hmm. and it's about a different group of people every time. So then it, so then it is about the idea. Right. And then we bring that idea, uh, into, into practice, like right in front of people. So then everything is like transparent and right out, you know? Right. And the only thing that's not, and we, and almost every time I do the concert is, is the scores. Like people don't get to see the scores until after the concert's over, like the audience. Right. So I, a lot of times I've sat on a couple of times now that performers have been like, we should, we should be, we should project the scores so that the audience can see the process of what's happening. But I really, I think that that like, that's where then you're like allowing the audience in on the sort of like the performative judgment calls that are being made right. by the, by the, and then it, then it becomes too much about the process. Right. And then not, not enough about the music. Right. It's not about the art anymore. It's about the process. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there needs, there sort of needs to be this like maintenance of like, well, yeah, there's still compo there's, there's still composers. Right. Right. And they are like supplying us with this creative input. Right. And then there's the performers who then are following with their own creative input. And then we get to do it in front of the audience who, who inputs their, their creativity with their imagination as they imagine, you know, what the scores look like that are being, you know, and then for me, it's, then it's sort of like solving all of these problems at once. Right. Well, that's good. It's very <laughs> yeah. high minded, but I, I like it. Thanks. I'm into that. And I also like to think that you, you set the stage for this interview by putting your cat on the table. Cause I now I've had a cat on my lap for the whole interview. <laughs> She's, she, she just like wants attention. So anybody new that comes in, she's just like, but it's good. It just sets me still. Yeah. I'm, I'm in very, Happily passive position. <laughs> um, yeah, Christian Wolf is. Um, are you going to be able to see him when he comes to town? I'm going to try to go to that concert at the MCA. Yeah, I am never home. It's breaking. Oh yeah, I'm gone. Yeah, that sucks. That, yeah, it's the worst. <laughs> um, but yeah, Christian. Well, he lived in New Hampshire, so I got to know Christian and Larry Polanski. Yeah, both up in up in New Hampshire. Yeah, and like. Um, yeah, they kind of set me, set me right spiritually in a lot of ways. Yeah, man. And watching that, the, his ensemble perform like, uh, on that roulette TV shoot. I mean, I don't know that the, the, the video does, does it justice. Um, though it is great. I mean, I'm, I, uh, made those recordings on the roulette TV and I think the recordings are really, really lovely, but being in that space with that ensemble, it was like. Joey Baron, um, uh, Robin, uh, Shulkowski. Shulkowski, yeah. Uh, Robin was probably, was probably Larry. Was Robert, Larry. Robert Black played bass? Yeah, Robert Black, yeah. Um, and Christian, and then maybe one other person, or was that it? That's probably the, I think it felt like that was the band for, yeah. for a minute. Yeah. Oh, man. Watching them like play and listen with each other is like, it was so special. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty great. Yeah. We did a show. I got to do a show. Robin and Joey weren't around. So I was the drummer for a show with Christian and Larry. And oh yeah. Robert. We did a couple of shows at the stone. Yeah. One couple of years ago. Oh man. What was that like? 
it was really great and really <laughs> educational. Yeah. Um, one just so lovely and mellow. Like we rehearsed at, um, do you know Dan Good? Oh yeah, yeah, totally. We rehearsed at his place, and he has all of these like, he has a place in Soho with all of these um, like banquettes along the windows. Mm-hmm. So there was like a lot of afternoon napping. <laughs> <laughs> like we'd play a while, yeah. and then Christian would be like, "Let's take a break," <laughs> and then everyone would kind of like take cat nap. Yeah, this is like napping and then like slow talking. Yeah, and what was funny for me also is to like, I come at you know, your discussion of the, the composer, the uh-huh. capital C composer that you referred to in your yeah. theoretical conversation. I think I often fall into the capital P performer mm-hmm. side of life yeah. with all of the same problems and structures. Yeah. Um, but so working, working in, I mean, what, you know, what does Christian Wolf have to prove to anybody? Yeah. But just like realizing that I was just useless. Anytime I would try to bring my new music virtuosity to the the event <laughs> would be to under undo the music. Really? Yeah. yeah. Like even there were times like Robert and I had some, so, some duos in this one piece he wrote, which I also love. He wrote a piece for the, for the, for, I guess the four of us. Mm-hmm. Um, but he started writing it like two days before I said yes to the gig. Mm-hmm. So the first two pages are just for the trio. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then my part comes in when Doug is added to the band. Yeah. Then like, and the percussion comes in. Yeah. But then there was like all these things I was just doing with Robert and we would in rehearsal, like find ourselves going to our yeah. new music virtuoso places. And like, <laughs> we had just had to realize like, just calm down, get over it, go yeah. with the spirit, like get yeah. into the stream of Christian Wolf and then yeah. everything is fine. Yeah, totally. <laughs> It's like, oh, that's yeah. amazing. It, uh, that'd be great. <laughs> so good. Yeah. Christian is so good. Yeah. Yeah. I feel a bit like, uh, I don't know. We were, we were talking earlier about like, you know, being introduced to things. It's like, I weirdly feel like I'm coming into like hitting my stride as a musician, like now, like as a player, yeah. as like a, as a, as a performer, um, in ways that I like never, and, and I, some of it has to do with being in Chicago and like having a little more time in the shed, uh-huh. you know, to practice and stuff. But when I was in New York, I never, I was so, uh, I never really put myself out there to, to perform other people's music because like a situation like that would have been like so nerve wracking for me. Cause all yeah. of my experiences had in college had been like, um, embarrassing. <laughs> as a performer because I was like coming from this place that wasn't um nearly trained to the level that like most of the people at at Oberlin at the conservatory were uh-huh. you know and so my place was like to be on the technical side or the conceptual side or whatever I don't know <laughs> but when did you form skeletons at Oberlin yeah I thought it was a yeah so you did start your band in yeah in college yeah but in that sort of serious um, <laughs> setting, you know what I mean? I never really had, and that was the band, part of the band was to like push against that, you know, to like go do the, do the stuff, do the stuff we wanted to do in the spaces that were available for us to do it in, you know, and sort of bring some of the ideas that maybe we were first being exposed to in music school to, to, to the, to the other side, you know, to uh-huh. like a different setting take rock music like very very seriously way 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 too seriously 
<laughs> and did you did you move to New York to like do that? Was that your? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I came home after I graduated. I came home the my junior year, second semester of my junior year. I spent in New York uh, doing this internship program. I worked at a recording studio in uh, Tribeca that was uh, owned, owned by the keyboardist from Cindy Lauper's band. So my first uh, engineering credit is on a Cindy Lauper Japanese uh, cover song track. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I came back. I went back to Oberlin, finished up, and moved back home to Chicago. And I didn't really have a great time in New York, to be honest. It was... Uh, lonely and you were there for a while weren't you well no i mean uh that first time the first time the first time yeah just for the the nine months that i was there or whatever this was in 2003 and um so i was like i was very lonely and i thought it was really intense and you know it's like whatever so i came back and i was like no i'm gonna go back to chicago and i'm gonna stay in chicago but then a big group of my friends all moved to new york and so then i was like working at the mall here Nice. In Schaumburg, yeah, Woodfield Mall at the Apple Store. Cool. Yeah, and I worked through one holiday season, and and then in January... What color uh, was your shirt? It was black. Okay, black. Yeah, nice. it's a little apple. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then we... I, I was able to get Apple to transfer me to the Soho store. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. So, and then a, a friend was going back to Oberlin to finish up, and he had been living... Um, for a semester doing the same internship that I was doing. And so his room in, in this loft in Williamsburg had opened up. And so uh, we moved, my wife and I, she wasn't my wife at the time, but we, we moved out there together and moved into that room right on the East River. Nice. It was dope. When you could do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was just thinking about like rehearsing in Soho, you know, like that's the thing about like New York is the same thing at Roulette. It's like, it's so it's so hard to when you see the way that like cats that are in their like 60s 70s 80s live in Soho right it's like it's so awesome and like it's like the romantic ideal the most that romantic I, that yeah. I have for myself that it's like it was so hard to you know I don't know, give up on that dream for a minute and come to Chicago. <laughs> but the thing was, it was a foolish dream because I was never going to get that space in Tribeca or Soho no, not even kind with, of. with windows and like a place to take a nap and rehearse, you know? Yeah, you had like a gamelan just chilling <laughs> yeah. in his living room. Like, you know, some sweet like recording studio set up like Jim, Jim's Loft. I mean, where I worked at Roulette was like in Jim's Loft, right? Right around the corner from where David Behrman and, and Robert Ashley lived. And, uh, and like... Uh, uh, Lenny Pickett lived uh, down the street and like he'd walk by and like wave or whatever. And John Gibson would be in the neighborhood. He lived around the corner. It was like, yeah. It was just, it's so crazy. Like where Jim lives, there's people up, upstairs and he lives in the same building as Meredith Monk. So Meredith would be like walking, you know, you run uh-huh. into her in the hallway and stuff. It's amazing. She lived on the fifth floor and she's like, I don't know how old she, she's got to be 80 or is in her seventies. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. She looks, and she's good. She's yeah. She, cause she walks up six flights of stairs for oh, her man. apartment, but it's amazing. Her, her loft is amazing. Um, but in that same building, you know, people have gotten kicked out or, or, uh, forced out eventually. And cause those, those were all the, the rents were frozen for like 25 years because of the loft law. 
right in Manhattan and and so people that have moved into the lofts that that had been vacated they're paying like nine grand a month or something to live in that building so it's like it's so strange in a certain way to be to be like I would imagine that it would feel strange to like be living this one way in surrounded by, I mean, I felt that in New York and other neighborhoods that I live, you know, lived in. Oh yeah. Well, it's like I was like, still trying to live this like artist life surrounded by a certain kind of wealth and, um, I don't know, a different set of, uh, priorities. Yeah. Well, for guys of our age, it's like the Williamsburg transformation Yeah. of like it, you know, Back in the early 2000s, my friends all lived there. Yeah. And now my bagel shop is an Apple store. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and exactly. Like, literally, yeah, my bagel shop is an a- Apple store. Apple store. It was hilarious. Yeah. God. And there's like a movie theater around the corner showing yeah. like Pixar movies. Yeah. That's so crazy. It's like, oh, wow. Yeah. Well, no, the place I always like to bring this up anytime I'm talking about it, but it's like the place that we first moved into is rented as authentic loft rentals. <laughs> it was renovated i mean when we lived there it was like this big compound um that they hadn't really done they just put like a kitchen in each of them uh-huh. in each of these like warehouse rooms basically what neighborhood in williamsburg it yeah. was the, right at the corner it's this big white building right next to domino where domino is like being uh-huh. built yep and right next to where all those new high-rises are and it, they they renovated that building and what they did is they they had to blow up blow up basically the middle of the building because it was this huge concrete building that that was just like a big solid rectangle. So they put in like a courtyard and some windows. So they put a courtyard so that so that there could be windows on on both sides of all the apartments. And yeah, and then they have this big sign that's like authentic loft rentals. Now, Aww. yeah, <laughs> that's great. Yeah. So that was where. Zebulon used to be. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It was a scene. Nice. Yeah. And then our friends, like they moved in down the, down the street where, you know, where, um, they were right next to Glasslands and around the corner from death by audio, that, that building, Uh which is now vice. Right. Yeah. 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 I didn't realize that you were one of the silent barn people. Yeah. Yeah. I did five seconds of homework. And yeah. I about you. <laughs> yeah. How long did, how long were you involved with, with that? Well, the silent barn was what on all the skeletons records and like Shinkoyo records. Shinkoyo is the label that the like label collective that, um, my, me and, uh, Daron Sajay and Peter Blasser and Sevi Martinez and Mario Diaz de Leon. Um, and, and, some other folks started when we were at Oberlin, still in school. We started a, started it to be a record label, so we could put out the records that we were making um, at the time. Uh, early on, I just called every we called like the house we were living in Oberlin Silent Barn, which came from this record that Peter um, Blaster had made with Sevi and Carson Garhart in a basement in Chicago when Peter had moved, graduated and moved out. So he was like building these. Do you know Peter Blaster? Huh? He's an instrument instrument builder. He makes these uh, sort of synthesizers, electronic music boxes. Mod, like now he's making Eurorack modules too. But he originally was making these like really uh, sort of individual um, and special synthesizers out of wood 
You have some of those. I have, yeah, I do. I have some little ones, and then yeah, I, I feel have, like you showed me those before. Yeah, and then I have a bunch of his. Just recently, I got that Eurorack infection, and I started buying some of those. Uh, and but but Peter's of Peter's uh, modules have sort of the, opened that whole realm up for me in really exciting ways. He's he's still like one of my favorite musical minds. Um, I sort of continue to follow him as like a super fan as much as like an old friend. And, um, yeah. So there was this record that he had made with, when he moved to Chicago and with an instrument called the Ambrazier, which was this, uh, two like stereo digital delay, two digital delays that had this giant modulation section in the middle that you could connect with, like copper wires or like by touching your hand to it and it had these different switches and two microphone inputs. And so when he first made that instrument, he, and this became sort of his working process when he'd make a new instrument, he would like make a record that would be, that would be like the instruments, uh, you know, test run or whatever. So he made a record with, uh, Seve and Carson and Johnny Mischeff, um, who were all part of skeletons at the time in the band. And um, they would just go down to the basement and improvise with this instrument. And Peter would play the instrument and they would all like sing and talk into it and stuff. And then Peter later would edit it into this like hour long epic, like narrative uh, album. And there, he did like three or four records in a row like that. They were all amazing. He did it Ambrosier. Then he had this instrument called the Trineau that he did a record like that. Then Dindat and Dudero, which was a surfboard instrument. Okay, that he of made that was shaped like a surfboard with like these big giant knobs that you sort of played like a record, like if you were a DJ, uh-huh. like scratching the record. Um, so there's this little, there was this like two minute long song on that record that, that mentioned the si- silent barn. It's like a phrase that Sevy just uttered while they were making this track, this recording. And it just stuck. So we would call the house that we lived in the silent barn uh, at Oberlin and and I would always say whatever, whatever skeletons record like was coming out, it was always recorded at the Silent Barn. Right, right, of course. And so then we moved to New York, and we we had a show in the loft that we were living in, in Kent, on Kent. Um, and I was out of town; I missed it. But it, Acceptor played. Do you know them? I think so. So great, like uh, some guys from No Neck Blues Band, and like just people in the, like killing people in the scene, sort of improvised electronic music band. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was like a wild show and it was at this called the silent barn. And then we, I recorded the, like the skeletons record started recording skeletons record there, but then we got kicked out and it was when they were sh- shutting that building down and they were going to start renovating it. And so we got kicked out. And so I was looking for places really naively looking for places like anywhere I could find that, you know, five people could share the rent on and Uh it had a space that could be like rehearsal recording space, um, and potential for doing shows, you know, like sort of naively or the thing that all of my friends did when they, yeah, (laughs) Yeah. but it was, you know, you, you, there was no other way it felt like at the time there, I don't don't even know how people do it now, but like it felt like at the time there was no other way to have a rehearsal space and, and a place to live. And be able to afford it on like what I was doing, which was like, I got, I got basically fired from the Apple store when I went on tour 
And uh, so I was moving furniture from my wife's uh, furniture company where she still works today and um, doing like man with a van gigs, you know, on Craigslist because I had the band van and um, and working at roulette, like hauling equipment. It was before I got my job at roulette. So I was making like no money at all. So I, I needed to be like in the cheapest. So we found this space in Ridgewood. And, uh, wait, so this, but were you like you and your wife also going to live there? Yeah. She lived there. She really likes you. Yeah, she does. <laughs> my wife would stand for any of this. Like any of these stories would not include my wife. Yeah. In them. No, she did it. She went along That's with awesome. it. But we didn't last that long living there. Um, because we moved in and we spent a lot of money like putting rooms in cause there was only a few walls built. So my wife and I like put a bunch of drywall on our credit cards basically, which, which we didn't pay off until like <laughs> last year <laughs> once we moved out of Chicago for a little while. <laughs> I mean, out of New York yeah. for a while. Um, and, uh, so we put a lot of money into it and then like, you know, realized how much money it costs to heat, keep the place heated, Yeah, you know? And so then there were all these extra expenses and it was just kind of a miserable way to live you know, f- for my wife. Um, and my, and yeah, I could, I was fine. I was 25, 24, 25, you know, hanging with the bros. Right. You know, it was like m- the whole band basically uh-huh. living together. And we had this basement space. It was perfect. I like just set up the studio in the basement and m- made a bunch of records down there. And then we had shows in the main space in the kitchen. <laughs> And then we, we moved out, and so there was like this... Well, it's great. My, it also makes so much sense then that you would work at Roulette. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. That's your thing. Yeah, totally. Have you, ha, do you or have you lived in your space? If yes, I would like to work there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> That's been a hard thing for me, actually, you know, leaving, just leaving New York and like, just, it feels weird to just sort of live in a, live in a, like be a commuter. Right now I'm a commuter feels very strange to me. So it took me a while to get used, used to it. Uh, cause I liked that vibe, you know, to, if, if I weren't living in the space where I was working, like to be very, be walkable to it or right, right, right. Know, ride my bike to it. Well, I was telling you today that it feels, I'm like a super, I'm a, I'm a super commuter. Yeah. One, like <laughs> I live about as far from town Chicago as you do. Mm-hmm. You're, you're West side. I'm North side. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then a lot of my work is either not even in Chicago. <laughs> yeah. Well, it sucks. It actually, yeah, it's like super isolating. It's all my work. Yeah. I fly normally a time zone to most of my work. Yeah. Um, which is makes you, you can, you have a nice bed and a very quiet space to work at home, but yeah. it's also like isolating in a weird way. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. And that's been the hardest part for me. I, I'm, I have three jobs now and, uh, I'm much happier Actually, I mean, it's kind of crazy and schizophrenic, but I'm much happier having three jobs because it means I get to go like hang out with different people three times yeah. a week and um, be like embedded into three different scenes and cultures, <laughs> three different, you know, th- three times a week. And um, before that, when I was just doing school and then teaching, I was only, you know, in, in the city one day a week. And the rest of the time I was here, it was like, I don't know, it was really confusing. 
Yeah. <laughs> I've only had some training and then I, before I lived here, I lived in New Hampshire, mm-hmm. which was super isolating. Yeah. So I had a lot of practice mm-hmm. working in solitude, mm-hmm. but I'm not like, not, I'm not a solitude guy. Mm-hmm. So it's been weird. Like for me, you know, my early career was all collaborating with people and yeah. like living on top of people. And, yeah. you know, I do well when I have to, you know, people be in around. a place with people and yeah, totally. No, me too. So that when I'm just in my office, like, yeah. yeah, I fantasized about it in New York when, you know, like all I wanted was some like quiet and some time to think and like work on writing music or whatever. But then, although, I'll, well, it. <laughs> although it does, it have some more coffee. Yes, you may. I can't get the coffee because there's a cat. Um, but yeah, well, you, there's a different kind of thought that you can have yeah. when you're when you're alone. Yeah. Do you ever know Nathan Davis? Do you ever meet Nathan? Yeah, totally. Yeah. He said yes. I bet you can hear him <laughs> from a distance. Um, Nathan lived in Vermont. He moved pretty much right after college. He moved up to southern Vermont and lived on a farm for a while. And um, I think he dealt with solitude in a pretty big way. Yeah. But he was always talking about how you you can have longer, slower thoughts in solitude. Mm -hmm. And so in some ways, like his... um, Well, he was teaching at Dartmouth. Mm -hmm. I inherited Dartmouth from Nathan. Oh, cool. Um, But he was hanging with Larry and hanging with Christian and writing text pieces and yeah. like doing that thing. But you know, in some ways his time in solitude, I think he would still feel this way, set his brain up for the next phases of his career. Right. Like he was able to think and get his thoughts down so that he came out of that time. Totally. Lonely, yeah. but clear minded. Yeah, totally. No, I feel that. So I, I was, do you know, Mike Reed, the, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. Yeah. Mike, uh, I, we he we were having a drink one time and he was like asking me about the program that I was in because I I did uh-huh. a master's in arts administration and policy which right. was a little bit of a um, curveball for me just conceptually or something but it was already what I was doing at roulette you were doing you were just putting your grown up pants on and yeah doing exactly it, yeah getting the degree um but like we were surrounded by people who had all like come through that program who were like, uh, he was, I don't know. I feel like he was, it was like, he was making a joke about, you know, the bartender had graduated from that program. Oh, and then no. like the, you know, the development assistant at Link's right. Hall He's had like, graduated. I, it's like, I why are you, all those people. <laughs> why are you doing this program? And I just, I mean, really for me and this, I, it was, I don't know. I shouldn't, there wasn't any negativity in that. It uh-huh. was just like, you know, I think it was just like a musician perspective yeah. and someone who's very accomplished, uh, sort of, um, self, self propelled uh-huh. individual, like making things work and making big things happen. Um, he did not go to school. He just kept doing stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So for him, that was like, that's where that question comes from. I think, um, but I just, you know, for me, it's like school, if it was just a two-year self-help program for me uh-huh. to like get a get some perspective on what I was doing and what I needed to do like in the future to, to have some sort of sustainable, healthy um, career that it can, can 
live in conjunction with my family uh-huh. um, and still be related to my ambition, um, then that was fine with me, right? If it's just self-help so that I can feel better about the decisions I have to make as an adult, I guess, yeah, yeah. then that's, that's fine. You know, that's what I feel like it's been like in a lot of ways. Um, well, that's good. I feel yeah. like that's this podcast for me. Yeah. It's like semi-weekly um, therapy sessions yeah. with people, <laughs> people I admire. Yeah. Just like talk some stuff out and come away and be like, okay, yeah. see where they're coming from. <laughs> yeah, I'm totally. okay. Or like, oh, I haven't thought about that. Yeah, totally. No, it's great. I mean, it's great to, I think that I actually love uh, listening to your and, and Jeremiah Zimmerman's podcast just oh. to like, because I think that we tend to like, I don't know. Uh, it's it's harder to make the reason to have this conversation, especially when you're in your maybe your like adult working life or something like that, and it's you're not like in the van for long drives right. with your best friends or whatever, or you're not like at the bar every night where you're having like a the bar philosophy hang right. or whatever. Um, so then this is this becomes like an opportunity to like hear where people are actually at, and I think just as much for the people who are on the show uh-huh. as as the people listening, you know, like this, like opportunity to like actually think through situations or whatever. Yeah. Cause I don't have this conversation at the dinner table with my four year old. Me either. <laughs> Not even close. Yeah. Although my son today, we were walking to school and just out of nowhere, he was like, how do you judge art? <laughs> he like, we, he, he entered into the, like, oh, how can awesome. we decide that Pollock is good art? Yeah. He started that conversation today. That's great. Cause he, he's had his Bob Ross phase and we just got some, he's been painting and, um, when he has oil paints, when he's done with the oil paint, mm-hmm. we don't like just get rid of the unused paint. We'll like, we have some canvases that we just, yeah, we go all, all experimental on them. Mm-hmm. But he was like, I mean, how, how, how do we value this? So we yeah. started down the road of, I started trying to go down the road of how to evaluate art critically. Yeah. And then we got to school. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how sweet. did you answer it? I'm curious. <laughs> Uh, I think I w- he was talking. He did most of the talking. Yeah. He was excited. And yeah, that's was, great. Um, I think we got to the point of you can do it better than worse. And how are you reacting to idea? I think we got into what are they reacting to and when did it happen? Yeah. We opened that can of worms. Yeah, but, yeah. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I can't wait. <laughs> um, yeah, so you went to school mm-hmm. and now you are working at your school, mm-hmm. you're at SAIC teaching courses, mm-hmm. and then you're at Elastic Elastic Arts. Yeah. What's your third job? I'm the program manager of the Chicago Artist Resource. What's that? It's, uh, it's, a, it's a part of Chicago Artist Coalition um, since 2012, but for, before that, it was a city, it was like a part of the Department of Cultural Affairs uh-huh. in the city, and it's sort of like Chicago's NIFA. It was sort of built to be like the Chicago arts community's version of NIFA, um, where it's a jobs and opportunities board oh, cool. that, um, you know, you can, people post, uh, calls for artists space. There's a space section. There's an event section. And it was, it was really formulated as, uh, you know, like an editorial space, like basically like a newspaper for the arts and commu- you know, the arts community in Chicago and meant to be interdisciplinary. Um, yeah, so I just started in January in that position. I'm there uh, a couple days a week. And I'm just at Elastic one day a week as a sort of helping out with 
development and programming and strategic planning. And then teaching one class? I teach one class a semester, yeah. Yeah. And what is your class? I last semester I taught a class called Media Futures that um that I uh put together from a syllabus by Adelheid Maris, who's the arts administration policy, the current acting chair um at SAIC. That's about new media, new media art, the internet, um and the role of artists and arts administrators in that um, massive conundrum. It's a lot to cover in one semester, actually. Yeah. Um, but we talk about... Um, That's good. Just a brain dump. Like, yeah. Here's, here's some topics. Well, we, we start with really, um, you know, really sort of heavy uh, philosophical texts, you know, uh, media theory texts, and then move into more practical um, work that people are doing around archives and um, museums, you know, like what it means to be a museum in the digital age and how museums are functioning. And then we do a section, a couple sections about, uh, internet art and post-internet art. And then we do a section about distribution and value. And so it's a, we cover a lot. It's, it was, it was a lot. And then we made a, we made an online exhibition together called oh, yeah, Te- yeah, right. technical images, nice. technicalimages.org. Um, that was really great. Uh, to sort of try and put those things into practice. And, is and, your syllabus uh, online? No, it's not. I would, love to, I would love to see it. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I'd absolutely share with that. I, I've been meaning to actually, I, I don't, this is my first class. That was my first class I ever taught. So I, I haven't quite figured out like where I, how I feel about like, I mean. Yeah, there, no, I get it. There was a, there was a while, even hearing you talk about like putting easy, easy, not easy on the online, right? Like, um, that's a great, I would love to do that. It makes total sense. But there's a long stretch of time for me where I sort of wanted to pull myself away from the sort of public, a sort of public, um, interactivity, uh-huh. um, around certain things that I was doing, uh, until I knew how I wanted to be engaging with those things, you know, publicly or whatever. So I like, I think, I think I would really like to share my my syllabi because I think it would like make them so much better. Um, but it's also this like weird thing to do like heavy. I had some friends who were like, I don't share any of my stuff. I don't post any of that yeah. stuff online because I don't want people like, um, clawing away at my decisions. Yeah. There's a, I have a weird, if you were to ask me how I feel about my approach to my, my career and my music making mm-hmm. or my, whatever I do, mm-hmm. I would, I would describe myself as very open source, mm-hmm. but it challenges me. Mm-hmm. I'm not as open source as I want to say that I am. Right. Cause yeah, whatever, whatever those break, there's some weird, like sometimes I have a hesit a hesitancy. Yeah. To like, I mean, there is such a like intense intensity of, of, um, I don't know, response, right? I mean, the, the time that we're in right now. So I, I even just posted on Facebook. I was like just trying to like get people to share my class because I needed a certain enrollment right, for right. their class to run, right? And I was nervous about it because it was my first class. So I posted and I just mentioned a few people. I mentioned like some names that were on the syllabus that um, that I thought people would be familiar with. And, and, and I immediately got like, make sure there's more women. <laughs> On the list. And it was like, oh, it was kind of frustrating because it's like, um, because 
I, I had worked so hard in making the syllabus to make sure there was like gender, a certain amount of gender parity and you know, like a conceptual narrative right. and all these things that I'd spent so much time on that then like, and maybe I'm too sensitive. I was thinking I'm a little sensitive about it, but and I yeah, shouldn't be. <laughs> yeah. And it's hard. Yeah. Um, so then I was like, Oh, that's interesting. I mean, I could see how if you make all of it public, then you're sort of, um, you're allowing this sort of like this, this pull away from um, uh, like a, maybe a certain like narrative or sen- sense of control you're trying to have. And, but maybe that's a good thing actually where I've come now is that I, that I would be totally open. Like I wouldn't be afraid of any of that. So I might end up doing that, but then I have to have like mattmalen.org like teachings, writings, whatever, you know, maybe I don't need that, but I'd have to have some home where the syllabus would lie, you know? Yeah. And I've never really done that. Yeah. Well, you don't have to, but you can email me as a friend. Yeah. I I might read some of the articles. It sounds nice. But then this semester I'm teaching this class called um, Musicians in the Spirit of DIY. And so it's, it's broken down into like what is how is music defined um what is the music industry um uh like how is music valued and distributed um what are the power systems in place and then and then it looks at the whole second half of the semester is just a bunch of artists in practice like trying to pick out artists that um are sort of important to me who had to interact with different industries or create opportunities for themselves in order for their work to exist. Uh-huh. Um, or for their, you know, like really ambitious or out there ideas to, to happen. Um, and also just people that have been really successful, um, at, at like making, I don't know, working outside of the box, you know, like we also, we're going to talk about chance the rapper and stuff like that too, where there's, there is sort of, I mean, he has a real strong... Do you know much about him? Uh, yeah. He has a strong, this strong storyline about independence and being free, you know, and there's songs about, like, labels, you know, like, trying to stop him. <laughs> Things like that. Uh, which are, I think, a sort of artistic narrative, creative narrative that he's uh-huh. building, right? Because right? um, he does have infrastructure that he's building, but he is building it outside of the sort of status right. quo of the industry of which he might be a part of otherwise, you know? And so those are the kinds of things that we will talk about and look at, but we talk about Robert Ashley, the quote that sort of ties the whole, um, class, uh, together is this line from perfect lives where he says, uh, things that are not a part of industry are not possible to be liked. <laughs> Uh, which is this like great sort of like hard truth, I think, um, especially for students in art school, you know. Um, and then we're sort of like placing that in different contexts. But so we're going to talk about how he tried to engage television to make an opera, you know, and like how he defined opera versus how maybe the rest of the world defined opera or whatever, and then how he made something for himself, you know. He, he, when I interviewed for him for Roulette TV, I could tell that he was still like kind of angry about the opera industry. Yeah, of course. You know? It's just like his whole life was like, uh, 
sort of confronted by this like unbudging like well it's the sand that makes a pearl you know you yeah gotta be agitated about something yeah <laughs> yeah right yeah no that's great <laughs> yeah i mean i'm totally like it's the days that i'm agitated or the days i make something happen yeah totally <laughs> so i i i get it and the yeah. days that i have too satisfied for too many days in a row i'm like oh no it's i'm done yeah <laughs> it's over for me yeah. um in a funny so the the guys that uh the music that starts my podcast mm-hmm. not that you would case study these people but they're these kids from chicago they're they're men they're men yeah <laughs> and and kind of a sister uh they're these these chicagoans who had a band growing up it's mm-hmm. three brothers and their next door neighbor mm-hmm. and then they wanted to create an infrastructure outside of the traditional label system and so that started as just like out of high school, you know, they recorded their own tunes yeah. and then did their own publicity and yeah. kind of were in charge of it. But then as they kept getting older and like, I think back then they had their production, I forget what their production was, they mm-hmm. had a little production company. And then, but then like they've all gone off to like get their superpowers. Mm-hmm. So one of them works at a big, um, ad agency in LA doing mm-hmm. the music. Mm-hmm. One of them is going to the Yale school of design. Uh-huh. One of them is at the Harvard innovation in school. They're like oh one God. of them, the sister is like a director for Portlandia. <laughs> they have all like, they are all using the industry to give them superpowers yeah. that they hope to come back yeah. like Voltron and become <laughs> yeah. this machine. Oh that my will God. Become the industry. Yeah. Right. Who is that? The group is called Filiger. Oh, word. There are these kids, the Matthiases, who are just these uh-huh. lovely... Uh, Pete was a student of mine at Dartmouth. And oh, then, man. it's um, amazing. But yeah, they yeah. just keep going off and like... Yeah. They're building their muscles and then they'll come back and do a tour and then they'll yeah. do something and then they'll yeah. do a record and then like... That's so great. Either that or they'll all retire successful in all these different fields. Yeah. But, it, <laughs> but even if as they are successes in their fields, it's all to like, because of the band, man. Yeah. It's all for the band. Yeah, totally. That's great. It's just pretty. Yeah. That's the best. It's impressive. Yeah. I mean, those are the, I mean, uh, you know, the band Deerhoof. Uh-huh. I was so impressed. I went on tour with them once and I was just so impressed by them. And, um, they, they just had it all sort of figured out like who was going to be in charge of what, uh-huh. And they, they really like function like a Voltron, you know, like they, they like come together in this incredible way and they, and that's part of why they've been around as for as long as they are, have been around and why they continue to be successful at what they do. It is just so impressive uh, to see bands. And, and I, that's why I love that idea of like having a class. It's like, okay, all of you need to start a band with each other. Cause I right. feel like you learn so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, about you know, there's so many opportunities to grow. Who yeah, does that. Yeah, how are you gonna solve that problem? Yeah, and there's so many you know, like being in it. That's like, um, I was trying to think of like a new name for this class that I'm teaching, the music and DIY class. Um, the name comes from a previous a class that hadn't been taught previously, and so I was like thinking of different names for it. And one of the names I was thinking of was like, what is the it? Okay. Cause that was like the first conversation we had in this class. So if, if you're doing it yourself, like what is it that you're doing? It, Cause I think people tend to think of it as being the music, right? So like 
I'm doing it. I'm doing the music. Like if you're a musician, right? Yeah, it's like it, it's, you're a DIY musician. So like you or whatever, or it's like you're a DIY show space. So that it is like the show making the show happen. But each one of those things like contains all of these working parts. It's the process. Yeah. So you have like, if you're in a band, like being in a band is this, um, this, this bringing together of, um, administration, management, team working, um, and then like practical things like marketing, uh, contextualizing, um, uh, administration, business, uh, budgeting, all of the, you know, uh, logistics, travel logistics and, uh, things like that. So it's like people are sort of learning all these skills if they're, if they're participating on that level. Um, but you know, Unfortunately, what happens a lot of times is that people have an expectation that that's somebody else's job, you know, as a musician, you know, right? because we're so sort of trained to um, not think about the other stuff and think, think about the music. You know what I mean? I mean, the conservatory is, is like that, you know? Yeah. You go four years into the conservatory and then you come out like, you know. I did anyway, like thinking that the most important thing was for me to like learn how to make better max patches. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. At least maybe as a drummer, you have to get your drums places from an early age. Yeah. So you learn there's like, <laughs> yeah, you need to totally. build coalitions to get drums places. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. You have so much logistics to handle as a drummer, percussionist, especially if you're working in like new music pieces where you might have like really strange requirements you know yeah but so much of what i do when it gets bad i think like and i've told presenters like when doing crazy things as i say every drum play every drummer knows how to get a drum set to a gig yeah <laughs> and they've played a gig where they had to get the drum set somewhere uncomfortable yeah. Yeah. so that part will happen yeah <laughs> yeah that's great and that's a lot for a violinist that's not no yeah totally. conclusion yeah and they've probably That's been so in a true. band, so they can probably plug a quarter-inch cable. Mm-hmm. Although less than you'd think. I've actually, in Boston, I'm about to give a big lecture on, it's like a Tech 101 for mm-hmm. the conservatory. Yeah. Basically being like, this is a 58. Yeah. <laughs> this is a 57. Yeah. <laughs> this is an XLR. Yeah. This, this is, is a, a DI inch. box. <laughs> yeah. Here's how the signal flows. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I take that stuff all for granted. But yeah, a lot of people... I mean, I remember being surprised as a sound person how few people, yeah. uh, you know, who are playing all the time, gigging all the time, like don't have... And then, you know, don't have like a sort of set set of preferences or whatever. Because our vibe at Roulette was so flexible too. It was like, which microphone would you like? We have like every microphone that right. <laughs> you could possibly ask for. So which one would you like? You know, and, and people, a lot of people wouldn't. Like what? Yeah. But then be, I'd be really impressed by the people that, you know, would come in and be like, I like this microphone. I like it to be here. I have my own, uh, like preamp that's going to go direct to, to the board for the live sound. You know, like they'd have it really down. I was always really impressed by those people. Yeah, I found one of the big things I'm telling my students is I don't talk about like what mallets they're using, mm-hmm. but I there's a guitar center very near our studio. Mm-hmm. But the number of I've I've walked a great number of them over to be like this is this is a four track mixer. Yeah, <laughs> we can get the Behringer, we can get the Mackie, but buy one of them. 
Yeah. <laughs> Let's get you some cables. Yeah. And here's how an oxen works. Yeah. <laughs> just just when bring it. Just yeah. bring it. You'll yeah. have it. Know how to do a submix. Yeah. It's gonna make life. It's gonna change everything for you. Oh my god! Especially if you're performing some, you know, some pieces that have extra stuff, right? If if you have a piece with um, a, a click track or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Like if you can, if you know how to set that up, then like your life will be so, and every performance will be so much better. Yeah. For if it. you're descending, like here's some, here's some, if you don't need the sound idea. person to be like, Oh, I have this mixer and like a set of an extra set of headphones that like aren't, don't, you know, like are going to fall out on you while you're playing or like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, all well, of cause that's things. even all of my kids too. That's I'm, like, if nothing else, mm-hmm. if you think you need monitoring, Let's just buy you the mixer yeah. and use the headphone back to you. Yeah. And you now have in-ear monitors. Yeah, exactly. And you don't have to worry about it. Yeah. And I mean, the same I everywhere. did sound for so many, con- you know, like pieces, like these premieres of like these brand new pieces. And people would be like pulling out their iPhone earbuds uh, that like don't have a long enough cable. And like, yeah. and they're like, they're, like creating this I... like uncomfortable position for themselves to perform it. Like $7 dollars like, at Radio Shack. Yeah. I, just, I, don't, I don't, I can't help you because I didn't, you know. I didn't expect to be your tech right. director or whatever as, as well, you know, but you know, like I, like Ross Carr and those cats at ice, like they, they, they have that stuff all down, you know, but it makes such a difference. Yeah. And it's cause they're road dogs. Like for me, it was, yeah. it was doing so stuff. Being on the road. Like, yeah. You're like, Oh yeah. Anything more than this set of circumstances could yeah. ruin the day. Yeah. So let's just be ready for that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And even like, with my kids, I've been teaching them, like, if you're doing a weird piece, if you have a friend who knows how to run a mixer, invite them to the gig. Yeah. <laughs> Buy them dinner, and they're going to be your sound guy. Yeah. Because <laughs> then, so the other night, uh, one of my students was playing this piece by this guy, Chris Cerrone. It's a big maxi thing. And yeah. He, the bad thing is he his mixer was to his left on stage, but the sound guy friend was in the audience. Uh-huh. So I was able to walk by and be like, it's great. Yeah, and he snuck up on stage next to him and did some mixing from the stage. <laughs> yeah, but it was like fixed. You had a knob turner who knew which knob to turn. And yeah, fix things. Yeah, exactly. It's it's huge. It's huge. Um, okay, so let's see. Uh, so how do you feel about your life as it stands today? Because <laughs> I think about you. You kind of when you you moved to Chicago. Is this your third year now living yeah, here? Yeah, I've been here two and a half years. Yeah. Yeah. You're here again now for two and a half years. Yeah, exactly. And you, I feel like when you moved here, well, you had you were going to school, mm-hmm. but hearing you talk about things, it feels like you're happy and you're not moving back to New York in a month. Well, I am applying for um, gigs. You know, my life uh, the last uh, year now, I guess, has been all about like applying for jobs. It's like my fourth job. When you apply for jobs, what do you apply for? I'm right now I'm trying to find teaching jobs, which I mean, it's competitive. And when you're teaching, because where like, or we could talk about the meaning of you also Uh up into this, where do you see yourself? Because I, when I think, when I think of you, I think part of why I like you is that it's confusing Mm -hmm. to think about who you are. Because at any moment you could be in a band Uh or you could be having very high minded thoughts. Uh (laughs) So I think of, I think of you as a thinker and a, yeah, I think of you as a mind who's trying to move forward ideas. So yeah. I 
Am I right? Is yeah. it okay to think of you that way? Yeah, totally. Do you think of yourself that way or do you think of yourself musically first? No, I think I think I am I mean more and more I think that the ideas are the the important part for me. Like even my band I tend well now it's like you know there's certain it's my band is less and less skeletons um is my band and it's or has been my band since like 2002. It's less and less like a real band. Um, at least in the last couple of years, um, especially after moving out of New York, but even before moving out of New York, like the, the core band started sort of dropping off and moving to different places. And, um, cause we had started at Oberlin and it was always sort of this Oberlin crew that was central to it. And they were all, it was always like my best friends, you know? Um, and so as that started to happen, it was just like me and, and, uh, Jason McMahon who's who's been around since like the, be- we were, we were like, uh, college roommates in college, basically all four years. Um, so always playing music together. So, so we started doing things like where we would get other people involved and like in short spurts, like do a, have a lot of activity, but then go back to just having like our separate lives again. Oh. And it wasn't, it, it wasn't that like, every other week band practice situation that it had been for like, you know, years and years. Yeah. Years. So right now it's like this real, it's even more ephemeral. And, um, so I find myself like sort of thinking about what it is mm-hmm. on, you know, maybe in, in, in a, as a little bit of like a retro retrospect, uh, to sort of contextualize it for myself to make sense of what I did and what took up so much of my energy and time. Cause we, there were a couple of years where we were playing like 150 shows a year. Oh wow. Going on, you know, like we'd go on like four tours in a year that only lasted for like two, two years or three years. Cause but you did, you did the thing. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I mean, I should also say that like, and it was never, we never made any money. Well, it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. Sure. So it never felt like, this one-to-one thing where it was like, Oh, okay. I'm, I'm doing this thing. And it's, it's like, it's making sense financially. Right? It's not paying for the other hundred and yeah. 200 days a year. Exactly. Yeah. So there was, there was, we were subsidizing it. It was very much that like, I work this job to, to be able to do this and this is what's important. And you know, in certain ways, and it was important to me to travel. And, and then once, once that slowed down in New York, I started to sort of get confused about what it was that I was doing. Um, so I started, you know, I started working more full time at roulette and like looking for other opportunities to, to try, try different things. Um, but the band became like a very ephemeral thing. And, um, and so now I even think of that, of the, of the band as being this like set of ideas, like, uh-huh. because I see the ways that we were like pushing these different uh-huh. agendas, you know, or like working as a group to like, you know, cultivate this, yeah, I this cultural, um, understanding between us and like our scene of people in New York. Um, and that was one of the hardest things about leaving New York for me was that I had really felt like I had this like deeply embedded community that of which I was a part and was really important. And I had like sort of understood myself inside of it. Um, so yeah, it was being in school was really hard to sort of like take a step back from that and like, um, you know, be in this situation where you're not like a performer, like sending ideas out into the void and like not necessarily getting any feedback on them 
but then being in this like one-to-one, like I have to write a thesis and everything is up for debate and uh-huh. that I'm saying and like pushing me in all these really hard um, directions, like both conceptually and emotionally. So it was, re- it was really hard. And then being back in my parents' house uh, and in the Midwest is like a totally different thing. So I miss being in a band. I do too. I don't like, I don't necessarily want to get in a van tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> but there is something like so comforting about having bandmates. Yeah. That I, when I think about kind of like moving, you know, towards the suburbs and not living in your space anymore. Yeah. I like, I can't want for better work and things are beyond my imagination. What I'm getting to do right now. Yeah. But there are just some days I do lament. I want a van I could get into. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I want somebody who could make fun of my hair for two hours yeah. <laughs> as we search for, you know. Well, yeah, you build a, a language that, that like only the band knows. And it's a, it's, it's a musical language and it's like a, just a, a familial language. Yeah. You know what I, I mean? still have this duo, my duo partner I work with all the time. And we, we just did a thing in Chicago a lot. Well, you, you've, you know, Todd. Yeah. Yeah. Worked with Todd. Yeah. But like we were, um, at the end of our work last week, I kind of got like, I got a little, not sad, but I got a little mm. wistful. Yeah. Cause it was just like, what a gift. Like yeah. it was like so nice <laughs> Yeah, to have this person just like, yeah. You know? Yeah. Do you, do you know Ian Sinonius? Huh? If he's from like the band, um, he was in nation of Ulysses okay. discord band. And he has a band called chain in the gang. Now he's in a band called the makeup, but he's been writing these books that are really awesome. He has a book called, um, supernatural strategies for making a rock and roll group. And he, he like lays out the idea of the band as coming from gangs and totally. there, there's gotta be other, uh, totally. uh, like writings about that. And that's totally what it is. It's your gang, you know, it's like the, your brotherhood or whatever. I mean, I hate to put it in this sort of like uh, no, 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 totally. ma- male thing, but, but that's what it was for me. It's like this gang of, of, uh, like-minded people to go be a, be with and and you know they're on your team you know what i mean you know that they're gonna like back you up in everything that you do and to be without that is sort of like it feels weird it feels like you're on your own and but that's been good for me to be honest to be a little bit i have to me too like in every way and Mm. also in every way like my old bandmates and i still have a crew if i picked up my phone now if we needed to have a bar fight like tomorrow (laughs) i could get a crew together I don't know if I could actually. <laughs> <laughs> I might have like had too many, one too many favors. <laughs> I still got, I feel okay. I, yeah. <laughs> my crew, my crew could rap. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, uh, back to your question. I don't know. I don't know where, I don't exactly know where I'm headed, but I'm trying, I'm just trying to take, take steps towards something. You know, the, the thing I like about teaching, you know, what, what being at SAIC affords me is like being in this creative environment with um, just some of the smartest student, like the students are amazing and they're coming from all different places and they're like, they want to ask all the hardest questions, you know, especially being in an art school and an arts administration uh, context, like means that it's like this hyper political, um, hyper intense, um, situation basically any any time you're in a classroom you know and the social interactions are really everything seems super intense 
Um, and I love it. I love being in an, in a, in a school setting like that, but then it's also this sort of institutional support system that I, that I didn't like think, you know, just the being involved, having that association means that I can like go out and do other things. Um, well, speaking about your, whatever you're talking about, the power of the composer. Yeah. You have yeah, the, you have the exactly. institutional. Yeah. And it's good. Yeah. So then I, it gives me a little bit more flexibility. And so I, I like to do a lot of different things and I like that. And I would like to find ways to like maintain all of those things. So then have, you know, cause the other, and the other thing is that teaching, I was saying um, to a friend of mine on the phone, it makes me an optimist in ways that as a, a student and maybe as an artist, that's good. I, I wasn't because I'm in this position now where I have these people all looking to me to sort of like keep the conversation going and like have it, have it am- amount to something. You uh-huh. know what I mean? Totally. And so then it brings it for me, I feel like it brings out all of the goodness that I need in my life to like be happier and be more productive and, uh-huh. uh, participate creatively you know um well that's good that you get that i definitely i mean i definitely get that for yeah. my my students how long have you been right. teaching for probably 12 13 years wow something yeah. like that yeah and um yeah it's great you still get that more even more now i think yeah. i think uh at dartmouth i it was wonderful and the kids were brilliant mm-hmm. But um, the stakes were so low. Mm. Like, it was really great working with these Filiger guys and some other, I had some other really great students too. But I was just like, I was the, you know, the icing on their educational cake. Right. So I wasn't, their lives were fine. I just got to like have a little input. Yeah. Um, And there I just liked being part of a bigger institution, which did support a lot of projects and Larry and Christian, like. Yeah. But now... I used to think I didn't want to do the kind of teaching I'm doing now, which is at a conservatory where the students come and say, I, you know, I want to be a performer with my life. Yeah. And there is like a, as one of their principal mentors, there's a pressure to that. Yeah. But it's also really great. Like they're super talented and super switched on. And yeah, if we set a goal, they're often going to exceed the goal and yeah, to see how they, and to see that, and I think it's the way I don't try to teach like here is the answer. Here is the solution to your life. Yeah. But by teaching it in a way of like, you need to own your future. Yeah. And let's get really good at all of this. Yeah, totally. I'm pretty hopeful that the kids, the kids, some of them are like 27, <laughs> yeah. but you I know, fall like, into that too. Was, but some of, like, some uh, of the students are probably like older than me. <laughs> um, but that they, uh, I feel good. They make me feel good about the future and yeah. like they're going to be fine and they might do good work that could make yeah. it better. And that's great. So it makes me hopeful. I'm hopeful. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel really lucky. I mean, I think that the arts admin program at SAIC is like probably one of the most interesting programs of that type that I could imagine. Cause they, there's so much flexibility and openness and it's way more about asking the hard questions than it is about like um, 
you know, business management best practices or something like that. You You're know, not just trying to make interns for the Chicago. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, there's certain, there's, there's certainly like a, a certain amount of people that, that come into the program that want to, you know, they want to go get the, the internship at the art Institute as soon as they finish and like, and utilize the school's relationship to the museum to like find a career in museum life or totally, or, you know, want to go back and, and, want to go find jobs, you know, in Sotheby's and things like that. Um, do they dress better than you? Probably. Yeah. <laughs> probably universally. Yeah. Um, but there's, there's just also, there's a bunch of people that like, you know, are really community minded and, and politically minded and they want to be involved on the sort of like ground level arts thinking and, you know, the, I guess, democratic side of the arts and not necessarily the exceptional side of the arts, you know? Um, but, but there's this like nice maintenance of like letting everything sort of be on this, in this nice gray area and on the balance beam, um, allowing for all of those things to coexist. And it's really fantastic. Gray area is good. Yeah. And that's where I like to hang out. (laughs) Me too. Yeah. I think uh, to go back to what we talked about at the beginning, I love the gray area. I feel like my career, the capital P performer mm-hmm. or capital M musician, capital C classical, uh-huh. <laughs> those those capital letters for me have put me into some more black and white. Mm-hmm. I I find myself trying to gray up area ter- black and white yeah. territory, right? Which is okay. I'm yeah, o- I'm okay living there. Yeah, <laughs> but the gray is the gray is where it's the most fun. I think. <laughs> It's, it's where I like to hang out, but I, I mean, you know, I, I've never had the, I've never had the opportunity, I guess, or I don't know, maybe, maybe I did have the opportunities and I pushed myself back into the gray areas, but maybe you just never it, thought to move out of your area. Yeah. <laughs> Cause in a way it feels good. Like maybe you're, you're just searching and you, mm-hmm. you're just, maybe you're better at following your instincts and curiosities. Mm. Maybe, or, or I'm just really bad at <laughs> finding a spot for me where I could reside comfortably. But I, I don't know. I tend to just uh, yeah push against the comfort. Like, because if it gets too comfortable, then it it's less interesting, right? So I keep pushing or whatever. Do you think that if you got a, um, if, uh, I don't know, what would be like your, uh, your golden ticket? Like, if somebody called oh, you God. up and was like, come be the come be the you know percussionist first chair yeah is there there one of those or no 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 because i'm also ideas yeah i just hit stuff yeah i think i'm an idea guy Mm -hmm. um yeah i ask my i feel like if i um Todd's making fun of me because I like to play the if you won the lottery game. (laughs) So I play the if I won the lottery game a lot. Yeah, Yeah, I do that too. (laughs) Because it like, I always feel like if I, you know, like if I win the Powerball, Mm -hmm. what would I do? Yeah. Would I, even down to like, would I run from my marriage? Yeah. Would I run from everyone? Yeah. Would I run from my jobs? Yeah. Would everything stay the same? Yeah. And so we were talking the other day and I felt like, you know, family's good. Chicago's good. Mm-hmm. And then like, would I still hit things? I think I feel like after too many days of rehearsal, I think last week I didn't feel like I would want to hit things this week. I feel good about hitting things. Mm-hmm. Um, but I always, it always for me, comes back to like that. I would just want to help facilitate 
good ideas and good programs. Mm-hmm. So if I ever won the Powerball, I would just turn into like the super, super mentor, super yeah. board member. Yeah. Saying like, let's, let's make creating initiatives is what yeah. I think totally. excites me the most. Yeah. I still like to make music, but I, but I always, I still think making music for me is like being in bands. Mm-hmm. It's chances to hang out with people and like collaborate. Yeah, totally. And yeah. then, cause also I think that's why I enjoy making music with my students and that we're unlocking things when yeah. we make music. Yeah. So it's music as empowerment, music as unlocking creativity. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, that's great. So that, yeah, there's no, it would probably make me really uncomfortable if I had to like, sign on to as much as I miss being in a band, but being like, you're this person in this group for the rest of your life. Yeah. I exactly. kind of freak out a little bit. Yeah, totally. Yeah. But I'm good enough at hitting things and people do pay me to do it sometimes. And people pay me yeah. to talk about it that like, I'm probably not going to get my arts admin degree anytime soon. <laughs> yeah. But I am in like a weird world. My, my world is gray enough that there have been times I've freaked out and like, even applied for jobs. Well, like when I apply for super academic jobs or I've even applied for some like leadership jobs, it all works against it. Mm -hmm. I'll be like, well, you're, you're doing all of this. You're so DIY. Then why, why would you want to be in a structure? Oh man. I had like the worst job interview recently. It went so poorly. Like, because I think I had basically, uh, it had been such a long time since I've had that, like that normal job, job interview situation where they were like how much of it but how much of an artist are you still like are you gonna are you gonna want to go on tour whatever right. you know what i mean like back to, that all goes back to like the you know being on tour all the time you're, vibes you're, just be like every time we go on tour i have to get a new job you know right. so like you're always like moving can i work with you at the things. apple store is this what the are you my manager at the yeah. apple store <laughs> yeah exactly and uh it just it flipped me out Cause I was just like, well, yeah, you know, I don't know. I, I, I know that you're not supposed to like talk about your kids at job interviews because you don't want to like, uh, yeah, yeah. pull that, you know, thread to, that they can start like pulling apart in front of you or whatever. But I have a hard, I'm, I like to, I'm like such a, I just like throw all my guts out on, on me too. I, I think I ruined most of my interviews. Yeah. By being like, this is, I'm just going to be honest Yeah, and you're either going to love me or not that, you know, I just like, I find when people ask me questions like that, I'm like, I have a four year old. Like I know, I know, I, I know how to be an adult. You know what I mean? And, yeah. I, my, I always wanted to answer when I've had problems in interviews, like I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I'm here. I told you I want to do this. Yeah. Why don't you take me at my word? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh man. I didn't, I hadn't prepared for that question. And, and I just, I just found myself like saying all the worst stuff, like all the like embarrassing, like 25 year old stuff that I would probably say like, well, I'm wholly dedicated to, uh, you know, honing my, my career possibilities or, you know what I mean? Like some like canned bullshit thing. (laughs) It was horrible. I just felt terrible afterwards. Well, it probably wasn't your job then. No, no, it wasn't. It it wasn't for me, but yeah. So anyhow, I've, I have no, I've stopped worrying about my dad. And even when I started this podcast, part of it was to try to talk to people about where they see themselves in five and 10 and 20 years. Yeah. Cause my, my dad used to always ask that question of me. It was yeah. like the lingering over dinner. He'd be like, so where are you going to be in 10 years? Yeah. 
I think I'm doing well enough that I know that I'm like not going to be in a box in 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> I should be okay. Yeah. And that things were, I will figure it out. But so then like, I think I just strive for curiosity now. Yeah. I hope in 10 years to be curious. Yeah. And doing the thing that I'm curious about. Yeah. It is such a double edged sword because it's like, if you plan too much, um, the fear, I mean, I think it comes from a musical place for me. It's like, it's like if, if I, it's like easy, not easy. Right. It's like with, when I do musical projects now, if I write too much, I, I'm afraid that I'm like shutting down possibility. Right. Uh huh. So if I plan too much, I have a huge fear of like shutting down the possibility for all these new things to happen, you know? But then if, if you're completely reactionary, which is, which is where I think my wife and I tend to hang out. Um, you, you can't make any plans and, and you can get stuck in that. So it's like, yeah, it's like finding that, that balance where you're saying, well, there is some, I don't know, there's some plan here. There's some score, <laughs> but it's just really open. Uh-huh. <laughs> there's a, that's Nathan Davis and I, where we, I'm the kind of person that it, I like to make a choice mm-hmm. so that I believe making a choice, you can then decide the second it's like flipping a coin over a choice. And then when it's heads and you wish it was tails, you're like, yeah. Oh, I really wish it was tails. Okay, fine. It taught me we should do tails. Yeah. And then, then it's tails. Yeah. Nathan never wants to make a decision because he doesn't want to close himself off to possibility. Yeah. So I just think that's a, that's also a beautiful way. Yeah. But, um, well maybe the close for both of us is that, we're both screwed because we're dads. So yeah. Our, children are <laughs> our decisions are made for us. <laughs> Cause as much as I want to be freewheeling now, I'm like mostly. Yeah. Yeah. Like, could you get, could you get up and, well, I mean, speaking of which I have to go pick my yeah, daughter up from preschool. Myself. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, can you like, could you make it a, a decision to get a job somewhere right now? Would that be hard? I mean, I'm it'd just, be, want- it'd be super hard. Yeah. We moved, we moved, here when Jake was uh, entering kindergarten Mm -hmm. because uh, it was really strategic of just like we knew we we knew we didn't want to live in New Hampshire all the time Mm -hmm. and if we moved when he was in kindergarten like what's changing schools after kindergarten yeah so like we moved so that in first grade he was set up yeah Um, so are you guys locked in now like probably until uh, (laughs) no we're not locked in but it's a it's a decision we make yeah seriously like we talk all the time about moving to Boston. Yeah. Cause I have this really good job and stuff. Yeah. But, um, but Jake's really happy. Yeah. And my wife's happy. And yeah, it's funny. He's now, we're now in the countdown to college. He's more than halfway to college now. Yeah. Wow. Um, so in some ways it's like, just hold on tight, man. We yeah. Just blinked and got to here. So let's yeah. just blink one more time and then yeah, we can totally. do whatever we want. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's where we're at right now. We're trying to, See, follow, look for opportunity, but not sure what, what, what's open or what's not open. But yeah, I mean, there's just so much in New York that I, that I miss and like would love if I could find the right opportunity, I would love to be in New York. But then at the same time, it's like, I don't know. It was so hard to live in New York with a kid. Um, yeah. Well, and why we didn't move back is once we, so you had Nina in New York. mm -hmm. Yeah. We had Jake in New Hampshire and then. 
once we started the kid out of the city, like the idea of starting that fight yeah. was more than we could bear. Yeah. So here I kind of, you know, it makes it easier. Yeah. Um, well, there's a Powerball. Yeah. <laughs> on Wednesday. Yeah. We play that. We'll pick one up. Yeah. <laughs> and you can buy a loft in Soho. Yeah. <laughs> you can buy Dan Good out of his loft. Yeah. And then you're set. Yep. Yeah. Open, open. That's that's what I would do. <laughs> open roulette two in your family yeah. room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, let's go pick up our children. Cool. <laughs> Thanks for having me do this. I this appreciate it. Yeah. I'm glad to see you. Yeah.
and lettuce and egg yolks are the Saturday night cute puddle booby traps. It's not a contest. Just to justify it being But who judges? 